listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belabored episode 154. It is here the day we have all been waiting for or dreading, the day where we talk about the Supreme Court's actual decision in Janus v. AFSME. We will have Charlotte Garden, a labor law expert who contributed an amicus brief in the case to break it down for us. But first, the maybe slightly less depressing news. In Seattle, there is hope on the domestic work front as a new Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights has been introduced in the City Council. I spoke with City Council member Teresa Mosqueda, who introduced the bill about why it is stronger than most such bills. Okay, so tell us a a little bit about what's in the Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights that you just introduced. Well, we're really thrilled here in Seattle. We just launched our Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights um, last week. And this comes on the heels of uh, almost a year of engagement with domestic workers, with hiring entities, people who have been engaged in um, taking care of our kids, caring for our elders, cleaning our homes and yards. So this really comes directly from the workers and hiring entities themselves. And Mm -hmm. some of the key provisions that we've included in this legislation are things like protection from retaliation and abuse, protection Mm -hmm. uh, from intimidation based on your citizenship status or documentation, um, and the ability to have minimum wage and rest breaks, and uh, some of the things that we just take for granted um, in many of our employment settings these days, we're extending to domestic workers, and it's long overdue. Yeah, so we've seen similar bills like this around the country. I'm I'm in New York, so we saw our Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights several years ago now. But talk about, you put some enforcement provisions in this bill that would be sort of different than what we've seen before. Well, we recognize that in domestic work you have various uh, types of employment situations. Sometimes you have one person who works for one family as a nanny five days a week. Sometimes you have somebody who cleans 10 to 12 homes a day. And sometimes you have somebody who's their own independent contractor and they're um, running their own business, but they really don't have protections and a place to go, a place to ask questions about when it comes to filing taxes or trying to make sure that your rights are being adhered to. So we are creating a domestic workers board, which will include both employers, the hiring entities, and domestic workers and domestic worker advocacy organizations so that we can have ongoing conversations about how we can improve laws and regulations to really protect some of these most vulnerable workers. And I'm sure you and your listeners know domestic workers have historically been left out of national labor protection laws. And so we want to make sure that we have a robust and ongoing place for this dialogue to occur so that we can actually extend protections. Think about workers' compensation or unemployment insurance, health care or retirement, One of the things that we're asking the Domestic Workers Board to consider is implementation and guidance for affordable benefits or uh, a leave bank, things like that. Um, We're also making sure that our Office of Labor Standards has the enforcement tools that it needs to do outreach and education to both employers and workers so that everyone knows their new rights. And it really is about making sure that people know where to go when they have inquiries about whether or not they've experienced wage theft or retaliation and how to get remedies. Right. Right, because one of the biggest challenges with domestic workers is that they're working in somebody's home and they're not on a shop floor where you have, like, a shop steward. And so these are this is one of the really big challenges that people have faced over the years. 
That's right. And a lot of times people are very isolated. If you're working in a home, you don't have coworkers. If you're working in a home, you often don't have a place to go to look up what the actual minimum wage should be or what to do if you've experienced harassment and intimidation. And the stories that we've heard over the last six months about people who have been injured on the job, individuals who've had their uh, hiring entity or their boss expose themselves, people who have, you know, been told, hey, you're going to get paid $15 an hour only to get paid $5 an hour. We really have a lot to do to make up for lost time, the fact that these workers have been excluded from national laws, and to make sure that people know where to go so there is a sense of camaraderie, people have a sense of uh, protections, and know that they're going to be free from retaliation. And I have to tell you, we've also heard a lot from hiring entities, employers Mm -hmm. who have really tried to do the right thing to make sure that they're paying above the minimum wage, that they're offering health care and sick leave. But they also want there to be a little bit more of a level playing field, recognizing that many um, are either circumventing existing state and local laws or don't know that they those laws apply to domestic workers. So mm-hmm. as we level the playing field, we're offering clarity to employers, we're offering guidance, and I think it's going to benefit the workers as much as it is the um, hiring entities because truly the work of a domestic worker makes all of our work possible in this city. So what are the next steps for the bill as it moves towards passage? So this will be the fifth hearing we have had in my committee. It's the Housing, Health, Energy, and Workers' Rights Committee. Uh, I just got elected in November, so this is one of my first big pieces of legislation relating to labor standards. We had a robust uh, public hearing last month, and on July 19th, we're getting ready to roll out this next version of the bill. We are talking to community stakeholders, organizations, workers themselves, hiring entities, mom and dads, and people who hire domestic workers to take care of their parents and loved ones. And we're getting as much feedback as we possibly can. Um, I am hopeful that this will be voted out of my committee um, by the end of the month. Uh, have a full vote by council who has been tremendously supportive. All nine council members, I think, are very supportive of this. And the mayor has uh, indicated her support as well. Last year I was with her and um, other council members as we signed a declaration to uh, work and pass a a Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. So I am really excited about this piece of legislation. I think we could see it signed into law by late July, early August. That was Teresa Mosqueda of the Seattle City Council. A new report from New Jersey Policy Perspective puts into stark relief the consequences of the horrific zero-tolerance proposal that Trump is now pushing at the border as it seeks to clamp down on undocumented immigrants. As more immigrants, documented and undocumented, are arrested and detained every day by federal authorities, the economic costs to families, communities, and whole sectors of the economy are often missed, but they are massive. New Jersey is a case in point with the third largest immigrant population in the nation. In addition to the huge economic contribution of its migrants, it's also one of the states where ICE arrests have shot up the most under Trump. And the state is losing tens of millions of dollars through their detention.
Commission, according to this new report, finds that New Jersey employers pay nearly $6 million in turnover-related costs annually when they're forced to replace employees that have been detained or deported. The economy of the state as a whole stands to lose about $18 million in wages and $1.6 million in total tax revenue annually from the detention of immigrants. And, of course, families are devastated when split due to ICE detention or even deportation, and the state now pays, uh, quote, approximately $732,000 in child health insurance and $203,000 in foster care for children of detained or deported parents. The report makes the case that universal legal representation for immigrants facing deportation, to which they are currently not entitled because immigration is generally dealt with in civil rather than criminal courts, this is crucial. Chances of success in avoiding deportation are many times higher for those with legal counsel, although currently more than two-thirds of New Jersey immigrants are estimated to be without legal counsel as they are in detention. Moreover, cases are increasingly complex and do often intersect with criminal law, and that's when a lawyer is even more crucial, especially when ICE arrests people on low-level offenses like traffic violations or minor drug crimes and ends up roping them into the criminal justice system and then basically just puts them on a fast track to deportation. In addition to undocumented workers, uh, there are also DACA-protected youth and workers with temporary protected status through an earlier humanitarian reprieve that was issued temporarily by the government, and uh, those statuses are expected soon, as you might know, so they will also be in need of legal relief once their status expires, and they are also uh, contributors to the economy and very much ingrained in their communities as well. I spoke with Erica Nava of New Jersey Policy Perspective on the economic and social toll of mass incarceration and deportation under Trump. Well, many people don't know that New Jersey has the third largest share of immigrants in the country next to New York and California. And our immigration population is very diverse. They come from all over the the world, with Indian Asians being the largest um, majority of immigrants in New Jersey. So with that said, you know, we have um, half a million of undocumented immigrants in New Jersey, and we rank fifth highest in the nation. But both documented and non-documented immigrants are at risk of being detained and deported. As many people might know, immigrants is not only an individual, but it's a whole, like whole families that are affected, right? So if someone go, uh, gets detained and they're the breadwinner of the family, the family is impacted. They cannot pay rent. Uh, they might lose their health care because uh, the person who was working had employer-based health care, right? So now they're going to turn into to um, apply for New Jersey Medicaid, and it has all these ripple effects on the family's economy and the local local economy that they live in, right? Because they no longer can purchase as much as they used to contribute as much to their local economy because one of the household members is detained or the only adult in the household who's bringing income in is detained, right? And if in cases where both parents are detained, I mean, the children end up in foster care. And now taxpayers have to pay that cost of foster care, which in New Jersey is annually around $11,000 per case. So, you know, it's all this effects that it has on New Jersey's communities and economy that people don't think about when people are detained. Many of the immigrants in New Jersey have been here for more than 10 years. 
So they have U.S. citizen children, they pay taxes, they contribute to the economy. And like I said, it's not only undocumented immigrants, also immigrants who are legal in the country are also subject to to detention and deportation. So 2.1 million will serve as a pilot program statewide. And, you know, New Jersey is trying to recover still from the recession that happened a few years ago, but we're still trying to recover from that and from uh, eight years of ineffective budgets under Chris Christie, adding costs, like I mentioned, in wage laws and tax revenue and um, child health care and foster care that are not currently there. We just make things worse for, for taxpayers in the state when they can just invest $2 million in helping and keeping families together, allowing immigrants to continue to contribute to the, to the state and to their local economies, and keeping their child's mental health stable. So, you know, I think that's one thing that people don't really realize about their mental health uh, and, and kids always seeing their parents anxious and reluctant to go places that other kids go just because they're afraid. Yeah, so I think now, you know, um, investing in universal representation would also lead to savings that the state would incur if the budget is signed. That was Erica Nava of New Jersey Policy Perspective talking about the economic toll of Trump's immigration policy. We have talked a lot about sexual harassment this year, and we certainly aren't done with the subject. But one group of workers that has been facing and fighting sexual harassment and assault on the job for a long time is hotel workers. This week, Marriott workers from around the country demonstrated for a contract that will include protections against sexual harassment in the hotels where they clean and serve guests. Some 10,000 workers at various Marriott properties over eight cities are bargaining new contracts right now, and so Unite Here, which represents them all, decided to flex its muscle on what turned out to be Janus Day and take action for fair wages, lower workloads that won't result in injury, and panic buttons that workers can use for safety when they enter hotel rooms alone. I think there's a real recognition that government's not going to take care of you. I think there's a real recognition that big corporations aren't going to take care of you, Detailer of Unite Here told BuzzFeed. So who's going to take care of you? I think folks are realizing that they have to take care of themselves through the vehicle of union. A survey of hotel workers in Chicago found that around half of them had been victims of some form of sexual harassment. Hotels in New York began providing panic buttons after the high-profile rape case, where then-head of the International Monetary Fund was accused of assaulting a hotel worker. And negotiations in Las Vegas, recently the site, of course, of a mass shooting, included panic buttons as well, noting that hotel workers are vulnerable to all sorts of dangerous situations. We will, of course, keep you updated on this and more. And if you are a Marriott worker working without a contract, you can always reach us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. While much of the news these days borders on the surreal, you had to do a double take when you saw the headlines about Trump's latest restructuring proposal for the federal government. He's got a grand plan to merge the Department of Labor and the Department of Education. Yep, it's like on-the-job training in one single administrative branch. This might strike you as an odd proposal, but given Trump's pension for corporate mergers, it's worth noting that this follows a long history of Republicans trying to abolish the Department of Education. The conservative rationale for this is that merging the two would lead to a more effective balance between workforce development and traditional academic schooling. Some states, you might argue, are already moving towards this model as they try to fuse workforce readiness with uh, their higher education systems. For instance, as Chronicle of Higher Education reports, quote, in Oregon, the Higher Education Coordinating Commission includes the Office of Community Colleges and Workforce Development, 
as well as the Office of Workforce Investments. Similar collaboration is already happening on the federal level, too. Under the Obama administration, the Education and Labor Departments jointly led the Trade Adjustment Assistance Community College and Career Training Grant Program. But all of that would not be quite as drastic as what Trump is proposing here, and labor advocates are presumably pretty miffed. Um, you might say horrified by the idea, since Trump has dismantled many core labor regulations, uh, undermined wage protections, and attacked unions through his labor department, which is ultimately supposed to be supporting workers. Many fear that the education department would go the same way if it's not already doing so right now under Betsy DeVos. So many fear that he would weaken and defund public education and labor under this joint initiative. The National Appointment Law Project called the ban unrealistic, costly, and immoral. Executive Director Christine Owens warned the two agencies have entirely different missions and little overlap, so these supposed priorities for streamlining are scant. Where the agencies do overlap, such as with career and technical education and job training for adults through our community college systems, Republican and Democratic administrations alike have a strong track record of working together. Combining the agencies will only serve to dilute the focus of each and will have the entirely undesirable effect of harming children and workers. Well, undesirable is in the eye of the beholder here when we're talking about the Trump administration. To be real, this proposal will likely be dead on arrival if it ever goes before Congress or gets an airing uh, in the Hill. But Trump, as the repository for the past three decades of failed conservative think tank ideas, has given the notion of a merger of these two departments a concrete public platform that shows that the debate around both education and workforce development and job training and all of these initiatives uh, to gear us up for the future of work are increasingly converging in a neoliberal economic vision. In reality, both labor and education should be returned to the goal of serving the public by promoting general social welfare and equity. Whether they do that as separate departments or as a single one isn't so much the issue these days. It's really a question of whether our schools or labor regulations are there to serve business or to serve workers and their communities. Well, Armageddon finally arrived on Thursday when the long-dreaded Janus decision finally came down in yet another 5-4 to four Supreme Court decision. The result was, as expected, a sweeping attack on the rights of public sector workers and a major blow to their unions. The decision, which twisted the free speech argument to dismantle the fair share fee structure that currently supports collective bargaining at many public sector workplaces, ended up validating the rights right to work agenda and Janice is expected to further undermine union representation and weaker worker protections nationwide. We talked to Seattle Law School professor Charlotte Garden about what it means for both public and private sector workers and how unions can move forward in the wake of Janice. Let's start with the basics. So what did the court rule and how will this affect workers? Break it down. Yeah, so in yesterday's Janus decision, uh, the court held that public sector workers can't be required to pay any money to the union that represents them, uh, even as the union has an obligation to represent them fairly, both in bargaining and in grievances. So in other words, the court constitutionalized the right to free ride in the public sector by saying that workers can essentially decide to uh, resign their unionship and their union membership to not pay any dues or fees for any reason. And 
obviously that will have pretty far-reaching effects. I would certainly expect some effects on union membership in the public sector. So, you know, we've already seen that uh, anti-union groups like the Freedom Foundation out here in Washington state are starting an active and well-funded campaign to convince public sector workers to drop their union membership. Of course, unions are also going to be talking to their members and have been doing this, trying to get people to sign up and to understand the value of being in their union. But, you know, I expect that that will be at minimum a resource intensive operation and that's going to divert union resources from other things that um, unions have traditionally done, like organize new workplaces and participate in politics. The last one being, of course, a major reason that this case was brought in the first place. So this particular ruling obviously uh, targets public sector workers, but how does this general sort of legal rationale that they're pushing, as well as the entire right-to-work ideology, um, affect the unionized workforce as a whole in both the public and the private sector? Can we anticipate broader impacts like that? I mean, certainly there will be some fallout that affects private sector unionized workers as well. Lots of unions represent both public sector and private sector workers, and dues and fees paid by public sector workers, um, you know, help support organizing and other activities in the private sector. Uh, so that's going to be harder um, because, you know, as we were just talking about now, uh, more of the money paid by members is going to go towards supporting public sector free riders. So there's a bit of an open question about whether the legal rule from Janice will migrate into the private sector. So this whole this whole kind of line of cases that about um, whether objectors can be required to pay union dues or fees actually originated in the Railway Labor Act context. And there is some suggestion from a much earlier case uh, that where a federal law preempts state right to work laws, that's enough to trigger constitutional protections in the resulting contract. If that sounds odd to you, it should. I mean, that's really not where state action doctrine has gone in the in the kind of ensuing decades. And Justice Alito dropped a footnote in Janice suggesting that it was unlikely that there would be constitutional um, protection or that the Constitution would apply to collective bargaining agreements uh, that have agency fee provisions. Um, in the private sector, um, but he also didn't rule it out. So, you know, it's possible we'll see more cases about that. If we do, I expect they'll begin in the Railway Labor Act context, so railroads and airlines. You know, if, if that's successful, then we'll have to revisit whether that will then um, kind of bleed into the NLRA context. Um, but again, I think the most likely answer is that um, Janice is going to be a public sector case only. So in addition in this ruling, the court essentially, Alito, I should say, essentially said that union members should have to opt in to paying fees to the union. Um, can you explain that? That seemed to be a thing that went a little farther than maybe even we were expecting it to go. Yeah, I mean, in the 2012 case, Noxy, SEIU Local 1000, mm -hmm. Justice Alito went farther than the petitioners in that case had asked him to go. That was a national right to work case. By saying that in the context of a mid-year dues increase, unions had to get affirmative consent before mm -hmm. charging non-members. 
rather than sort of assuming um, that, you know, people would pay the, the fee unless they objected. Um, so in other words, in Knox, in this kind of mid, in this kind of odd mid-year dues context, the court flipped from an opt-out default to an opt-in default and suggested that was, and said that was constitutionally required. So, you know, certainly it was expected that um, Alito would try to muster a majority for the same rule for every um, time a union charges user fees. Um, and that's exactly what happened here. You know, I find everything about Janice problematic, but, um, you know, especially this part, because Alito seems to assume that there's some sort of, you know, general principle that you're entitled to have the government kind of let you know and seek your affirmative permission before you waive your constitutional rights. And that's just obviously not true. I mean, if you think about the abortion examples, right? I mean, you know, in uh, lots of red states, there are you know, all sorts of kind of misleading preambles that doctors are required to give their patients that are designed specifically to discourage patients from exercising their constitutional rights. The same in the criminal law context. Um, if you are a criminal defendant and you go to try to exercise your constitutional right to represent yourself at trial, the judge can do a lot to kind of discourage you from exercising your rights. So apart from being, you know, a general principle that the government has to somehow help facilitate your exercises of rights, it's often exactly the opposite. Anyway, Alito ignores all of that and, you know, just pretty much like cites Knox and says, well, this is what we said in Knox, and that's what we're saying today as well. Right. Well, that goes perfectly into my next question, which was that you noted on Twitter the sort of Alito two-step that he cites his own opinion in Knox and then his own opinion in Harris v. Quinn in setting up the, the precedent that he's then arguing from in Janet. Right. Uh, yeah. So Justice Alito really... Um, set the stage for, you know, Friedrich two years ago and then um, Janice uh, yesterday by kind of creating a bit of a, you know, creating a roadmap in this Knox case to effectively invite more cases challenging agency fees and possibly also other aspects of the way unions operate in the public sector and said, you know, sort of here's how you do it. Surprise, surprise, right? A bunch of anti-union groups took him up on that invitation, right, filed briefs sort of saying, hey, like, look at this, you know, very persuasive language that you wrote in Knox, wouldn't you like to reiterate it in a holding in these new cases, right? And of course, Alito did want to do exactly that. Can you just talk about who uh, would be most affected by this particular ruling, and especially the way it's articulated? And I guess I'm, I'm also curious, going back to the op opt-in, opt-out thing, um, how much will that directly affect the way unions are working now? Is it currently the case that opt-in is not widespread, or um, how, how will that play out? Well, it definitely affects blue state responses to Janice. So blue states could have responded to Janice by saying, okay, we're going to have, you know, maintenance of memberships, maintenance of dues, we're going to have an opt-out default, right? Lots of, you know, there are states that already had that and other states might have adopted it. You know, now, obviously, that's not on the table. So, you know, that eliminates one, you know, response to Janice that would have been probably pretty helpful. Be, you know, because as, as we know from lots of other contexts as well, right, defaults are important. You know, in part because 
of people's inattention, right? So, so maybe you start a new job as a public sector worker, you know, maybe you sort of know there's a union out there that bargains for you and would, you know, process a grievance on your behalf if you ever had one. Um, and you think that's, you know, kind of generally a good thing, but, you know, you don't quite get around to filling out the form that would allow you to join your union. And so, you know, you don't start paying you the fees, right? You essentially become a, a free rider, even though you, you know, might have preferred to actually be a paying them. You know, there would be other, you know, if, in, in the case of an opt-out default, of course, there are people who, you know, might prefer not to be a member who will, uh, or might prefer not to pay, who would nonetheless be paying, be a paying non-member. But, you know, that's, that's sort of the nature of, that's sort of the nature of default. Um, but the other thing is that a default carries a message with it, right? So when the default is don't be a member, is, is you're not going to be a member unless you affirmatively take steps to sign up, then, you know, a worker could take from that, um, that, you know, there's something unusual about being a union member, right? Or maybe even that the employer doesn't want people to become union members. So, you know, the risk is that flipping the default would be interpreted by workers not as, oh, here's this requirement that's been externally imposed by the Supreme Court, but instead as, you know, this is something that I should glean some kind of message from. Mm -hmm. And so what, which, which workers and which workforces are particularly vulnerable to um, this, this decision as well as, you know, the, just what it, what it essentially decrees states to do? One way to look at, at, the, at that question is by looking at just which states have agency fees, right? And that's, you know, about 22 states. And so, you know, those are the workers who are going to be affected by this decision. But another way to look at it is who benefits the most from public sector bargaining. And, you know, their low-income workers, women, people of color are likely to be public employees and are perhaps going to be disproportionately impacted by this decision, right? So a, weakening, a general weakening of union rights would disproportionately affect low-wage public sector workers, um, women, and people of color. In this ruling, one of the things that the court argued was that labor peace was not a compelling reason to maintain the Abood precedent. And in the Abood case, the court weighed pretty heavily on the, the idea that labor peace is something that the, the state has a, an overwhelming interest in. Um, so can you explain that argument a little bit and what the court means by basically saying it doesn't matter? Or I think Alito wrote that, you know, there are other ways to maintain labor peace. Yeah, I mean, I think that Justice Alito, you know, a state or a public employer should maintain labor peace by just, you know, cracking down more harshly on, <laughs> on their employees. Yeah. It's like just just make a rule against disruption. I think is I think is actually his answer. I think Alito probably doesn't know a whole lot about public sector labor history, um, which is probably yeah. true for a lot of people. But you know, in the course of writing the brief that I, uh, the amicus brief that I co-authored in Janus, um, I went back to some of the legislative history um, from some of the states that adopted public sector bargaining with an agency fee. And, you know, one reason they, the, the states, right, the employers wanted an agency fee was they felt that otherwise, you know, unions in order to kind of prove their value to workers who could, you know, kind of resign for any reason would be to, you know, be as disruptive as possible, fight every grievance, even if it's dumb, you know, would generally be, you know, the, the union's approach right to the, the free rider problem in the open shop would be generally to be as kind of disruptive and difficult as possible. 
Um, and, you know, reasonably, I guess, right, reasonably, public employers didn't want that, right? And they said, well, an agency fee gives the union a little bit of latitude, right, to do things like tell somebody who's got a grievance that's frivolous that the union's not going to bring it. Another thing that the court talks about a lot in this decision is public spending and budgets, both to argue why public sector bargaining is First Amendment protected political speech, and also to argue that unions are basically a drain on the public purse. So I think Jed Purdy was called it, you know, an austerity decision. Um, can you talk about this, this sort of direction of the argument and what that means? Yeah, I mean, one thing I will say is that, um, you know, I went to oral argument in this case, and Justice Kennedy at one point asked a question that was basically, you know, that paragraph of Justice Alito's opinion, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, aren't unions responsible for a whole host of, you know, as Justice Kennedy saw them, ills, right, including teacher tenure, registered fellows, teacher tenure at the end of this question. Um, I'm supposed to be sad that he's retiring. I know. Well, you know, I mean, anyway, I mean, when it comes yeah. to employment decisions, this is something that is, um, you know, no friend to public employees except those who wanted to um, resign from their unions or not pay union fees. Um, and, you know, it's hard to believe that his replacement can be much worse on labor and employment issues. Um, you know, it's just all the all the other issues that we yeah. that we talk about. So, you know, you know, to hear Justice Alito and Justice Kennedy tell it, right, um, public sector bargaining is this kind of corrupt bargain where, you know, blue states decide that they want to empower unions um, because they want unions to support them in the political process. And, you know, therefore, in bargaining, they give away, you know, all sorts of things to these public sector workers and just pass the cost along to the taxpayer. I mean, if you ever talk to anybody who does public sector bargaining, which I, you know, I, I haven't done public sector bargaining myself, but, you know, I know lots of people who have done that, you know, that's what they, you know, they hear that and like they, you know, can't stop laughing, right? Like their experience of bargaining over, of bargaining contracts for their members, right? Even in these days, right? Is not that their public employers are dying to like raise taxes on, on people in order to give, you know, public sector workers raises. And it also, you know, that, that reasoning also ignores the, you know, kind of workforce management reasons that many states decide that they want to bar that they want to collectively bargain with folks. There are multiple reasons that a public sector employer might decide collective bargaining is useful. One, right, is in response to disruption, right? So you see lots of strikes from public sector workers um, and public sector employers might decide like, hey, maybe instead of having these like disruptive strikes all the time, it would be more useful to actually sit down with our workers collectively and kind of talk about what they want um, in a, you know, in a productive forum before things boil over and there's, and there's a strike. You know, the other is, is, if anything, even more pragmatic. So if you're the state of Illinois or, you know, California or whatever, you probably employ people who are you know, highway toll collectors and, um, you know, pilots and childcare workers, right? And, you know, several hundred other things. And, you know, you have to figure out what you're going to pay them and what their working conditions are going to be. Um, and none of that is easy, right? Um, in the private sector, one response to that problem is to kind of subcontract, right? 
um, to subcontract, you know, for example, your um, janitorial work to another company, um, creating what David Weil, of course, calls the fissured workplace. Um, but there are lots of reasons, good reasons, including public accountability reasons, that public employers don't do that. And so they need to figure out another way uh, to manage the, you know, to manage all these diverse human resources needs. And one of them, right, is public sector unions, uh, because the union goes out and figures out and does all the legwork of kind of figuring out what people want and what people value, right, and then comes back and presents the kind of expert and unified voice to the employer. So, you know, that's a, so if you sort of think it through that way, right, it, it's a like, much different picture than the one Justice Alito and Justice Kennedy seem to believe is true, you know, but of course, we made that argument in our brief, and obviously we couldn't them at all. So. so in dissenting, Justice Kagan argued that the court was weaponizing the First Amendment against regulation and is doing so, obviously, in this case. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and where this sort of line of reasoning that the First Amendment therefore essentially allows corporations to do whatever they want or, you know, I guess in this case, public sector bosses to do whatever they want? Yeah, uh, so first, you know, I completely agree with Justice Kagan. Um, I have an article called The Deregulatory First Amendment at Work, um, which mm -hmm. talks about some of the kind of various places uh, the deregulatory uh, First Amendment is popping up. And of course, one of those areas is, you know, public sector labor in this case, but also other cases challenging other aspects of how public sector unions operate. So representation, union membership incentives, um, union orientation in the public sector, and the list kind of goes on and on. But then you also see other types of cases where either conservative or business interests are trying to define what we might think of as, as really conduct that takes place by, you know, through talking as speech protected by the First Amendment. So for example, you know, my kind of favorite example of this, um, which, which was thankfully unsuccessful, involved a challenge to Seattle's $50 an hour minimum wage phase-in. Mm -hmm. So that phase-in occurred um, over two different time horizons, depending on whether you were a small employer or a large employer. And it treated franchises like large employers, you know, because of all the kind of support they get from their, you know, franchisor. So the theory was that by treating franchises differently than small businesses. The Seattle City Council was discriminating um, based on the franchise's speech, right? Like their advertising as the, the fact that they advertise themselves as like a McDonald's or a Wendy's or whatever, or that or that that differential phase-in would affect the amount of money available to franchises to engage in speech. And the trick is to kind of get into the realm of the First Amendment, because then you can argue that if you find some kind of speaker-based discrimination or content-based discrimination, that you apply um, heightened scrutiny to the legislative decision you're challenging, and as we saw in Janice, um, but other cases as well, it's pretty likely that you will win. So the deregulatory First Amendment was in part a project of Justice Kennedy. Um, you know, he wrote some of the uh, most important decisions kind of establishing the um, types of arguments that people are using in these cases. So Citizens United, of course, um, but also a decision called um, IMS Health 
that had to do with um, a law that, uh, that that restricted the sale of certain pharmaceutical information for certain purposes. So, you know, that's that's, that's something else we can we can all thank Justice Kennedy for as he leaves the court. You know, that said, I am pretty skeptical that his replacement will have any difference on the deregulatory. Process. So we're going to see more of these cases. I've been rambling for a while now, but the last thing I'll say about the deregulatory first amendment is that John Coates IV, he's a scholar at Harvard, did an empirical study, and he concluded that um, now, or at the time he did the study, um, nearly half of First Amendment legal challenges benefit business corporations and trade groups, right, rather than, you know, associations, individuals, the traditional kind of beneficiaries of First Amendment protection. Right. Uh, in that context, um, there's there's been a debate about whether this narrowing of public sector union rights would have perhaps an unexpectedly beneficial impact on unions in the sense that um, unions could learn how to perhaps, you know, reorient themselves around more proactive organizing, make their memberships more active. Do you, do you see a potential silver lining in the sense that because, um, you know, the, the ruling in Janus might have such a um, a dramatic impact on sort of um, undoing these these defaults that much of organized labor in the public sector has relied on for so long that it could actually sort of re-energize um, some of the organizing activity on the ground. I mean, maybe um, you know. I mean, maybe this. You know, I, I certainly hope that uh, this is kind of a galvanizing moment um, that sort of leads a lot of public sector workers to say, you know. Hey, things are getting really terrible in in ways that um, you know only bode ill for you know us and our families and communities. And you know our labor unions are a major kind of force um, in in resistance to all of those trends. Um, and that labor unions are able to kind of connect with workers and um, to you know ensure that the unions are actually doing all those things. And that that will lead to, you know, a more engaged union membership, right? So I hope that that happens. Um, you know, I'm certainly not saying it won't. You know, I do think that we shouldn't um, underestimate the force with which the other side is going to be putting the other message to workers, you know, including like at their houses, right? Um, and, you know, unions are going to have to invest heavily, right, in internal organizing and not in other kind of other kind of new organizing and kind of movement building activities. So it's worth kind of pointing out, I think, that, you know, as the court disregards the need for labor peace, that labor law as can, as it has existed for the last 70 or so years was a compromise between massive strikes and workers trying to take control of the means of production. And so as the justices sort of increasingly just pick apart what's left of those compromises, thinking about what a new labor law regime would look like. What could we sort of expect to see replace this? What could we hope if we elect a lot more Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes to Congress to actually build that would be maybe better? Sure. I mean, in the private sector, you know, I think there are like lots, I think there are lots of great ideas out there for reforming um, labor law. Um, you know, I think sectoral bargaining would be extremely promising. Um, you know, I think for any effective labor law change. Uh, we need to get away from enterprise-based bargaining. You know, I would love to see something like, 
the default be union membership, like in the sense of union represent like union representation at a workplace or in a sector, rather than not union representation unless the workers elected. That would require substantial change on the Supreme Court as well as substantial change in, in Congress and the presidency. You know, I think it is time, and I think a lot of people think it's time to kind of think about labor law from the ground up, sort of recognizing that the existing system of enterprise-based bargaining is sort of hopeless, um, and that, you know, major union renewal is going to have to um, kind of take place hand in hand with a legal system, uh, with a sort of system of labor law that doesn't enable individual employers to be able to say to workers, you know, credibly, well, if you unionize, then, you know, you're all going to lose your job. Right. Just to uh, throw something else in here, um, we also uh, see this coming on the heels of the um, Masterpiece, Masterpiece Cake Shop ruling um, that also involved, um, in some ways, uh, free speech issues, as well as, um, in a sense, the, the withholding of a kind of labor. And I guess um, is there some have articulated perhaps that um, there could be ways that the court might be sort of these these decisions um, that that turn on free speech in unconventional ways perhaps um, might actually have the unintended impact um, of maybe you know spurring more more workers to actually embrace the idea of union activity as free speech and becoming more militant in that sense, or, or at least finding more license within the law uh, to take more militant action. Let me kind of give you a different example, because uh, the way Masterpiece Cake Shop came out, right, so, I, so, so people sort of expected Masterpiece Cake Shop would end up being a free speech decision, and then it, it didn't end up that way. But there is some you know, talk about whether, you know, a silver lining in Janice might be the discussion of the heightened free speech protection that workers apparently receive when they present collective demands to their employers. So, you know, you might think, well, um, you know, maybe one thing that Janice means, in addition to all the terrible things it means, is that, uh, you know, workers who you know, are not necessarily in a union or who um, are in a state where they don't, their union doesn't have collective bargaining rights, you know, might have new and improved First Amendment protections for kind of other kind of disruptive collective action. You know, in dissent, Justice Kagan sort of says, well, you know, I wonder when the first time that happens, right, suddenly uh, the court's solicitude for the First Amendment rights of employees acting in concert is going to go away. Um, and we're going to find out that this is, in fact, a union-only rule um, or a union dissenter only rule. Um, you know, I think that's the way to bet. And so, I don't know. I'm just extremely pessimistic today about everything. I mean, I guess, the, you know, I guess in some ways the question is, if we imagine a time when we are back to having, you know, at least five, you know, liberal or progressive members of the Supreme Court, what will these decisions mean? And then I think there is a real question and a real like discussion to be had about whether it's a better idea to kind of articulate a fresh vision of the First Amendment or, you know, the 13th Amendment or the other kind of places that people kind of locate to engage in collective action, rather than kind of taking these, you know, bad decisions 
um, from you know this year and other other um, recent decades, um, and trying to kind of like repurpose them for um, you know repurpose them in ways that benefit workers. Um, I tend to think that uh, the kind of new vision of the First Amendment, or sort of recovering a lost vision of the First Amendment from you know kind of the uh, Warren Court years, makes more sense. But you know. There's also the kind of incremental nature of Supreme Court case law to consider, right? So we may end up um, we may end up going down the repurposing route. So this is just kind of gossipy, but like the court waited till literally the last day of the term to drop this decision and kept us all waiting. And other than Alito's desire to torture us all, why do you think that is? I spoke to labor people early on who expected this to drop like as soon as possible because they wanted to defund the unions as quickly as possible. I mean, I think part of it is that um, the briefing in Janus was really different than the briefing in Friedrichs. Um, and so I think there was more to do in the opinions than just do like a, you know, find and replace all for like, you know, Friedrichs for Janus. <laughs> um, yeah. I think the uh, one other thing is that at least one of the dissents cites NIFLA, um, the, the case that came out mm-hmm. days ago now. Um, and so, you know, the court had to wait until that decision was out. And so that that could be a reason as well. I don't know. I mean, the court also waited until the last day to decide Harris v. Quinn, which was argued earlier in the term than Janice was. So, you know, there's also just something to the um, court's tendency to wait until, you know, they're all about to scatter for summer vacation to issue their kind of most controversial decisions. I think that's a good point to actually bring up is like, this is a controversial decision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, in a term of extremely controversial decisions, uh, you know, this was still one of the biggest. Um, and especially once it turned out that the court was going to kind of punt on some of the gerrymandering cases and also, you know, sort of decide Masterpiece Cake Shop pretty narrowly, um, you know, that that just kind of raised the profile of Jen. Yeah, I was going to say, um, having it come on the last day, uh, the, the same day in which uh, Kennedy announced his retirement made us certainly feel uh, less sentimental about uh, saying goodbye to him. And uh, you, you mentioned um, in your initial reaction to this on, on Twitter that um, you know you expected further litigation and, and for this to sort of, um, uh, for the Janus decision to perhaps reverberate um, in further court cases that could open the door to more regressive rulings on labor. Can you um, anticipate what some of those might be or what we should look out for in the uh, in the next whirlwind season of uh, terrible Supreme Court decisions? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So listen to what Alito said about exclusive representation in Janus. He called it a, quote, significant impingement on associational freedoms that would not be tolerated in other contexts. So if that's not an invitation to further litigation, I don't know what is. Um, that is, I would say, stronger language than Alito used about Abood in Knox to signal that he wanted to, you know, have a case challenging agency fees. So in Knox, um, Alito called Abood an anomaly, right? You know, significant impingement on associational freedoms that would not be tolerated elsewhere, right, is something we should be nervous about. So there are already some cases, and there have been a number of cases challenging exclusive representation in the context of so-called partial public employees. So they're the employees like the home health care workers in Harris Quinn who are, you know, hired by individual um, families or customers, um, but who are paid by the state. And so, you know, I think we'll see we'll see more of those and a more kind of active press to get those cases up to the Supreme Court. 
And then, you know, if the court takes one of those cases and holds that exclusive representation is unconstitutional in the public sector, I don't know that all hell will break loose. The exclusive representation challenges, I would have thought until, you know, until I read that sentence in Janice yesterday were complete non-starters. I think they, I think the legal theory behind them makes no sense, you know, but apparently the pseudo has questions. You know, there are, that's certain, those certainly aren't the only cases we're going to hear. Um, I think there will be more cases challenging whether union membership incentives are unconstitutional in the public sector. Um, there, you know, there's already been at least one of those cases. I think we'll see more. I, there will be challenges, and there, again, there are already challenges to um, union orientation in the public sector. Um, again, those haven't been successful so far, right? Let's see if that holds. You know, basically, I think any state response that's designed to blunt the impact of Janus will see a constitutional challenge. Um, and the question is just how far um, five justices of the, on the Supreme Court are willing to go. Um, and of course, the Supreme Court is about to get a new appointee, and that could also affect um, the balance and, and where the majority lies. Personally, I welcome Supreme Court Justice Ivanka Trump. <laughs> oh, I was hoping I know, for Judge Judy. Judge Rudy Giuliani. Sorry, yeah. I just had to give you all nightmares. I mean, people used to be optimistic that Trump would appoint his sister, who was a Third Circuit judge. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Marianne Trumpberry. Did um, not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but I think it turns out that she's uh, too moderate to be appointed. Yeah. Oh, you mean like she's a real judge? Oh, oh well, I guess. So you know, I guess the only other thing I would say about this case is it really deepens the divide between the way unions and workers are treated in um, campaign finance law and the way, you know, corporations and the rich are treated. So, you know, one kind of defining feature of the Roberts Court is a set of decisions that restrict the ability of states to, uh, states in the federal government to kind of try to level the playing field a bit in the electoral process. So, you know, pre-Roberts Court, uh, the Supreme Court accepted that it was reasonable for legislatures to try to ensure that people can make their voices heard in the electoral process, even if they're not independently wealthy. The Roberts Court does not have that view at all, right? The Roberts Court in Citizens United, but also in other cases, um, sort of said that, you know, it, if, if you are a, a rich person and you want to spend a huge amount of money um, in politics on, for example, a self-financed campaign, um, it violates your First Amendment right for the state to come in and try to, through its public financing system, um, you know, equalize things a little bit for your opponents. So, you know, in the context of um, campaign finance law, right, the court has this vision of this kind of like real, like laissez-faire um, marketplace of political ideas. But in the union context, right, you know, there were already under Abu these protections in place for objecting union members so that unions, right, couldn't use their kind of economic leverage, if you will, um, right, right. in order to enhance their participation in the political marketplace. And now, right, now there's this surcharge uh, that the courts placed on unions and union members who want to participate in politics by saying, well, before you can do that, you have to pay to represent um, these, you know, non-paying non-members who are in the bargaining unit. 
That was Charlotte Garden, professor of constitutional and labor law at Seattle University Law School. You can follow her on Twitter as we do at Charlotte Garden. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. Friend of the show, Alex Press, has a piece up at Vox titled How Silicon Valley Workers Are Revolting Against Trump's Immigration Policy. As the title suggests, this is a story about tech workers organizing against Trumpism, something that we have discussed on this show before. At Microsoft, as the furor about Trump's zero-tolerance policy at the border and its attendant family separations ramped up, employees began to circulate a blog post wherein Microsoft had bragged about its support for ICE, the agency carrying out Trump's policies. Specifically, Microsoft was going to support ICE by letting it use its facial recognition software. It turns out that the company had a near $20 million contract to do just that. Employees reacted with anger, the company hustled to cover its ass, but as the employees pressed on posting an open letter calling for the cancellation of the contract and a clear policy on human rights going forward, they drew more support. Tech workers have mobilized against the Muslim ban, which was upheld by the Supreme Court this week. And last month, Google workers protested Project Maven, which would provide the Department of Defense with technology to analyze data from drones. Alex writes, for one Microsoft worker, it's a chance to have real impact. Tech companies provide the machinery for coordinating between ICE agents for tracking down immigrants, they said. If tech workers decide they're not going to build that, if they decide they're going to put their bodies on the gears, they can stop it. The unfolding story at Microsoft, she writes, is just one development in a fast-moving revolt by tech workers against the Trump administration. The Google protest over the drone-related Project Maven was another key inflection point. After a months-long campaign that included a work boycott by what Bloomberg described as a group of particularly influential software engineers known as the Group of Nine, the company announced that it would not seek another contract when the current one expires next year. We owe a huge debt to the Google employees who were able to get Project Maven not renewed by standing up, said the senior, senior engineer at Microsoft. I don't know if this would have happened if they hadn't acted first, as it provided a very good blueprint for us. These workers are in contact with one another across companies in groups like the Tech Workers Coalition and Science for the People. There is also increasing interest among these tech workers in organizing alongside the immigrant workers in their communities and in their workplaces for better conditions in tech. It's not exactly a union drive, but it's definitely a start. Well, if you're feeling glum about Janice, you might cheer yourself up with my pick for ARG this episode. It's called There's More Than One Way to Strike the Boss by Mark Engler, a friend of the podcast who has appeared in a previous Belabored Live episode. So after watching the Trump administration systematically repeal and undermine labor protections left and right, and now further undermine union rights through this latest Supreme Court debacle, it might seem like Trump is scoring some pretty big wins on us, but Engler's analysis of labor resistance as a form of civil disobedience in recent history is noteworthy in the context of so-called open shop America. Engler outlines moments in history when labor managed to go on strike without really going on strike. He highlights the recent spate of teacher strikes in the red states as case studies. As we've discussed before, these educators who have been operating in states where strikes were effectively outlawed and union rights were already extremely weak, um, they've set a, quote, high bar for militancy, showcasing the importance of the conventional strike. 
Whether in West Virginia or Oklahoma, North Carolina or Kentucky, these red state teachers have provided an inspiring example of how working people can use well-planned collective actions to demand respect and win gains previously considered out of reach. The important point here is that these were more or less wildcat strikes in many cases. Uh, So as a lesson going forward, Engler adds, there's no doubt that if the U.S. labor movement is to reverse its declining fortunes, it must revive the strike as a feared and frequently deployed tactic. It's certainly not limited to relatively educated sectors of the workforce. Bus drivers in various cities around the world have indirectly struck back with fare strikes, which are essentially a method by which they continue to operate their routes as normal, but they refuse to collect fares. This tactic isn't quite the same as a work stoppage, uh, but it's sort of like a sit-down strike for drivers. And it's even more powerful for building solidarity with riders, of course, because it shows that the two are actually on the same side and they're united against the boss. In one instance, Engler writes, in 2016, a community coalition in Grand Rapids, Michigan, led by United Students Against Sweatshops, organized groups of passengers to board buses and refused to pay their fares in support of transit workers fighting to preserve pensions and combat fare hikes. The sick-out tactic is similar in the sense that it allows workers to withhold their labor collectively without formally calling a strike. Since the boss can't effectively prove that it's an organized action, even when all the teachers happen to call in sick on the exact same day, they can circumvent anti-strike rules while still accomplishing the same effect. No teachers in the classroom. Then there's the time-owner practice of the work-to-rule, where resistance takes the subtle form of meticulous attention to detail. It's particularly effective in office settings, where perhaps the union isn't as powerful as a collective bargaining voice per se, but it wields control over the internal corporate bureaucracy, and it offers workers endless points of leverage that could gum up the works if you just stuck your thumb in them for a moment, and it, of course, really irritates your boss. Engler points out that teachers in California, Maryland, Massachusetts, and Ohio uh, have all deployed to rule without outright striking, with educators, quote, foregoing late-night grading, after-school meetings, and extracurricular activities in pursuit of better working conditions. Similarly, journalists with Al Jazeera have weaponized the lunch break in their newsroom to slow down news production and operate at the bare minimum standard according to their contract. As Engler explains, quote, work to rule renders visible the many hidden contributions that working people routinely make, buying supplies for their classrooms, bringing their own tools to the job, not reporting injuries so as not to anger higher-ups, to keep things running efficiently. By ceasing to volunteer these undervalued contributions, they make a resonant and principled statement about the value of their labor. In other words, just one turn of the screw could make your whole workday unravel, and that might ultimately be a more effective way of withholding your labor in terms of disrupting the workforce. Of course, all these measures fall short in some ways of the power of sitting down at a table and collectively bargaining a long-term labor contract with your boss, but sometimes you can negotiate power just as effectively through altering your work practices through clever organizing. After all, movements are powerful because when people who are relatively powerless mobilize together, actions do speak louder than words. And that's all for Belabored. We will be back in two weeks. Please tell us how people at your workplace are reacting to Janice. Gripe about Janice on our Twitter feed at hashtag belabored. You can also email us story ideas or tips at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.